Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast for the foreign policy and global development communities and anyone who wants a deeper understanding of what is driving events in the world today. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. Enjoy the show. As 2021 comes to a close, I thought it would be worthwhile and interesting to gather some veteran United Nations watchers to reflect on the key events that shaped the work of the United Nations this year. So I'm joined in this conversation by Margaret Bashir, the UN correspondent for Voice of America, Anjali Dayal, assistant professor of international politics in the political science department at Fordham University, and Louis Charbonneau, UN Director for Human Rights Watch. We recorded our conversation live via Twitter Spaces, which has partnered with the podcast to produce episodes using the new Spaces platform on Twitter. And the conversation you are hearing now is a condensed version of that Twitter Space, the latter half of which included audience participation. You can access the audience Q&A part by following me on Twitter at Mark L. Goldberg and finding this space recording. All right, here is my conversation with Margaret Bashir, Anjali Dial, and Alou Charbonneau. Enjoy. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. So today we are going to look at key moments from the United Nations in 2021. What were the highlights? What were the lowlights? And what, in retrospect, were the events, decisions, or actions in 2021 that may be historically significant, if any? I am joined by two veteran UN watchers, Margaret Bashir of Voice of America and Anjali Dial of Fordham University. I'm going to chat with Margaret and Anjali for a bit, then bring others up on stage. Uh, Margaret Bashir, I will kick off with you. First, I'd love to have you just introduce yourself so people can hear your voice, and then have you explain what were some of your standout moments from the UN in 2021. Hey, Mark. Thanks so much for having me back on your podcast. Thank um, you. Good to be with you guys, especially at the end of the year. Uh, time for a little reflection. Uh, I am the UN correspondent for The Voice of America, and I will take this moment to say that any v views that I express are my own. <clears throat> and not my employers. <laughs> and uh, I've been covering the UN since 2008. So I've been there for a bit now. So I've seen a lot. Um, I'd say, okay, so I was thinking about it. And I uh, am putting out there that I think the most important moment at the UN this past year was uh, January 20th, 2021, which was the inauguration of Joe Biden. 
And I think it was that, uh, was the, you know, it was a significant, really significant development for the United Nations uh, because the previous administration had withdrawn hundreds of millions of dollars of funding from the UN. Uh, Antonio Guterres, the secretary general, was basically on tenterhooks for four years during the Trump administration, terrified he'd be tweeted about. So uh, it really kind of undermined and inhibited his work as secretary general. So uh, with Joe Biden's arrival, uh, there was this great fanfare about uh, diplomacy is back, multilateralism is back, and uh, Biden did make good on it. Within 24 hours of you know being sworn in, he was signaling our return to the Paris Climate Agreement. He was uh, you know saying we'd go back to the Iran nuclear agreement. Uh, he provided funding again to the UN Population Fund to the UN. Uh, Palestinian agency, UNRWA. So it's been a big boon for the United Nations that uh, the Biden administration is in office. So I think that that's been a really significant moment for the UN this year. And let us not forget that unlike the previous administration, he has not blamed the World Health Organization for uh, the administration's incompetent handling of the COVID crisis. Uh, well, but, and indeed, yeah. he also, uh, yeah. you know, was going to pull out of the World Health Organization. And Joe Biden has has stopped that happening as well and is cooperating with the World Health Organization. So, Margaret, is there like a discrete action or decision at the United Nations that you could pinpoint resulting or flowing from the fact that this newly uh, this new U.S. administration is in office, committed multilateralist administration like I, I understand it changed the mood. It opened up funding. The United States no longer was withdrawing from these international agreements. Uh, was there any specific sort of decision or moment that you think kind of uh, encapsulated this kind of the U S is back uh, opportunity that the United Nations seized on in any meaningful way? Well, I mean, I'm going to be really lazy and pick something that happened yesterday. Yeah. <laughs> um, yesterday, well, I knew this was going to come up. So, yeah, go for it. so I'll just put it out there. Uh, yesterday, the UN Security Council adopted a resolution uh, where the uh, humanitarian aid can go to Afghanistan now to the de facto authorities, i.e. the Taliban. And uh, this has been really important to averting a humanitarian catastrophe there. 39 million, million people in Afghanistan, something like 23 million of them are in need of humanitarian assistance and really facing a very difficult winter. And so this resolution the council adopted with, uh, I believe, the U.S. Uh, drafted, allows aid to flow for a year without uh, uh, violating the international sanctions that the Security Council has on the Taliban. And sort of in parallel with that adoption, the U.S. also announced Wednesday that it was using some of its sanctions mm -hmm. on the Taliban to allow aid to go through. So these two actions sort of together um, really going to make a big difference for the people of Afghanistan. Yeah, I mean, I received the same back-to-back -back press releases that I presume you received as well, Margaret, first from the State Department and US-UN announcing that this resolution passed, and then uh, an, a press release from the Office of Foreign Asset Control at the uh, Treasury Department, which controls uh, sanctions programs, saying that they are easing some of these sanctions. So it was obviously very sort of deeply coordinated. Um, yes, abs absolutely. Yeah. And from what I've heard from diplomats, I mean, the U.S. has been working behind the scenes really hard in the Security Council to get some traction on this front yeah. to help. And uh, Martin Griffiths, the U.N. humanitarian chief, went to visit Tony Blinken in Washington uh, a few days ago. So there's been a lot of, uh, you know, engagement on this. Uh, Angelie, 
Over to you. Can you introduce yourself and take a stab at my question? Yes, absolutely. Hi, everyone. I'm Anjali Bayal. I'm an assistant professor of international politics at Fordham University's Lincoln Center campus in New York. I um, want to follow from what Margaret said and, and say that, you know, this last year, as we've seen the whole UN system pivot from basically like the crisis mode of trying to manage the Trump administration to the sort of larger crisis mode of everything around us, we we sort of see, I think, um, two events, for me at least, encapsulated what I think are really critical parts of the way the UN is in the world right now. The first is COP26, and the second is um, just this month, the the World Health Assembly gathering to consider a new treaty or convention or accord um, on pandemic preparedness. And in both cases, what we see is that this last year has really showed us how absolutely vital the UN is to solving collective problems like catastrophic climate change, like uh, pandemics, and what the absolute limits of the UN's possibility for work in the world are. Like we all know the UN can't do anything member states don't want it to do. And unfortunately, in both these arenas, what we see is we have problems that only real multilateral action and only a global organization like the UN can help us solve. But we also have a UN system that is fundamentally not set up to sort of, you know, make sure states follow through on things they don't want to do because that's not what states want. And so we see the sort of, I think, like full scale investment in making it look like you want to approach these problems by member states. And you see that in the sort of enthusiasm around meeting for things like COP26 and on the effort to put together um, maybe a new kind of instrument to deal with global pandemic preparedness. But you also see the real limits of that action, right? We don't see enough return on things like COP26 because member states won't make those commitments. And you're not necessarily sure what the instrument will look like in terms of sort of what will come out of the World Health Assembly because so many of the international instruments that we have right now are basically like trying to game out what will happen if we can't get buy-in from powerful states. And so in both those cases, I think we see like a crisis year really showing us both the necessity of and the limits of the UN. It's really interesting how you frame the idea that there is just like profound enthusiasm around COP26, which there really was. Like 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 people really wanted to be there. They really wanted uh, this to be an important moment in sort of the history of climate diplomacy. Uh, yet that enthusiasm that I think is was real among delegates there was not necessarily reflected in the outcomes, which is sort of a really interesting dichotomy. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think also it shows us like a third big current at the UN, which is like so much of that story coming out of the sidelines of COP26 was about the exclusion of civil society and about who was and wasn't allowed in that room. And we've seen that dynamic, I think, all year at the UN itself, like physically, right, civil society not being allowed in the building for a whole host of reasons, including understandable health concerns. But all of that translating to sort of, I think, this growing uh, disjuncture between like pressures building on the UN to act from the ground up 
And, you know, a combination of sort of member state understanding that these are problems that can only be solved cooperatively and unwillingness to really open up that box of who can participate and how. Um, uh, let me say uh, to all three speakers, Louis, uh, I'll, I'm about to bring Lou Charbonneau into the conversation. Feel free to to respond to each other as well. This is, I think, a little more of a looser format than my conventional podcast episode. Uh, so let me bring Lou Charbonneau into the conversation. Uh, Louis is a was a longtime UN reporter. Now is the UN director for Human Rights Watch. Uh, Louis. What were some of your key moments from the United Nations this year, from your perch at Human Rights Watch? Uh, thanks, Mark, and thanks for having me on the podcast. Um, this is a great opportunity to talk to you and um, engage with um, you know fellow UN nerds and observers who who care about the UN. I have indeed been a UN watcher for a long time. I was a UN reporter first in Europe, uh, based in Vienna, starting in 2001. Then I moved to New York in 2008. Um, Margaret and I actually started as reporters, I believe, on the same day, um, the first workday after the new year in 2008. So we go way back. You want to fact check that, Margaret? Yeah, I was actually thinking it as he said it. It was like January 3rd, 2008. We, we both started together. All right. Yeah, it's uh, so. And then uh, I was Reuters bureau chief for the UN and left in 2016 to join Human Rights Watch um, after covering a lot of human rights issues um, for Reuters. While at the UN, I'm now doing it full time as an advocate uh, at Human Rights Watch. So um, it's, uh, yeah, it's been a long trajectory and I've seen a lot of change uh, over the past um, two decades regarding the UN. And I'd like to pick up on something that uh, Margaret was saying, that it it really was an important moment on January 20th when uh, the Biden administration took over and very quickly tried to make clear that they were adopting a different approach to the UN um, uh, as Margaret said, restoring funding, um, going back to the UNFPA, which had been a target of, you know, particular ire from the uh, Trump administration. Not for the first time, the Bush administration had also defunded the U.S. portion of uh, the UNFPA. So it's been a kind of um, Republican thing where. Mm. Republicans take away the funding, then the Democrats bring it back. If a Republican comes back in office in the presidency in the U.S., um, I think uh, we can expect probably the same thing will happen again. Um, but and just, know, to be, just just sorry to interrupt, but this is the UN Population Fund, the uh, UN agency that supports, among other things, reproductive health around the world. Yes, thank you for uh, explaining the acronyms. Um, sometimes we who follow the UN are um, not quick enough to explain what the, what the words mean. It's a very important yeah. agency, um, one of you know one of if not the most important uh, global UN agency for you know women's health, women's rights, and um, alongside UN Women, the UN agency that you know, focuses on women's rights overall. Um, So what we've seen then is the Biden administration, you know, not attacking the UN left and right, uh, not trying to 
undermine human rights. We saw that the Trump administration was trying to create a kind of um, cherry-picking approach where you would pick the human rights that you consider are good for your government, um, you know, which is something that we've seen countries like Russia and China propose. The, the U.S. kind of joined, uh, hopped on that bandwagon, but we're not doing that anymore. But there's a lot that's not different. The U.S. is not supporting the kind of pressure, for example, on Israel over its abuses in the Palestinian uh, territories, the occupied Palestinian territories, that we really need to see. Um, the, and that's just one example. Um, I would other key moments um, for the UN stepping back and um, looking at the UN, particularly the UN Security Council. I think that February first was an important date, and the reason is is because that was the date of the coup in Myanmar. And what we have seen since that time is, you know. And just um, a abominable series of human rights violations, firing um, against uh, uh, protesters in the streets of Myanmar, also doctors uh, and medical workers being arrested, um, uh, jailed, uh, abused. So um, all kinds of ghastly abuses. And the Security Council has essentially done nothing other than issue a few statements. And um, the responsibility for that inaction is shared across the Security Council. It's not just China, which has been the traditional protector of Myanmar, which a country that many people know is Burma. Um, so it's also the United Kingdom, which is the what they call the penholder, the drafter of UN Security Council statements and resolutions on that particular topic. So it hasn't really been pushing things. Uh, Russia, of course, is standing alongside China and sometimes even more aggressive and saying, let Myanmar's military government, which took over and ousted the democratically elected government, uh, previously, um, and uh, Russia is is simply standing by China, also having support from India. So that's been a bad one. We've also seen UN Security Council failures uh, this year on Ethiopia, um, a devastating conflict, uh, and um, only two statements from the Security Council over the past year. We've seen a partial failures and partial successes mm -hmm. if you want to look at the uh, glass half full instead of half empty on Syria cross-border aid. Mm -hmm. um, we saw um, the continuation of the last remnant of the Syria cross-border humanitarian aid mechanism, which is um, an unusual mechanism that allows uh, aid to flow across the Syrian border yeah. without the permission of the Syrian government. Um, Lewis, and let me well, let me. I was oh, sorry. Yeah, sure, sure. Go for it. Is, yeah, is, is is I was really glad that uh, Anjali mentioned the um, the the uh, exclusion of civil society from the UN over the past year. This is something that really has been difficult to understand. That while you know COVID restrictions, of course, are important. Everyone was let back into the UN on some level except for civil society organizations, making it clear that there was some that that 
COVID on a certain level was being used as an excuse to mm. keep out civil society because we're the ones who are making noise often and criticizing the UN and delegations. And so um, we hope that we'll be able to get back in the building so that we can do our work because a lot of it needs to be done in person. We need to be able to go into the rooms or at least talk to the, the diplomats and UN officials when they come out of important meetings. So anyways, with that, yeah, I'll well, shut up. Liz, I, I wanted to pick up on your points about Myanmar and Ethiopia and maybe see if I can formulate a question for Margaret and Angeli, but we, the Security Council's inability to act meaningfully on both the humanitarian and human rights and conflict crisis in Ethiopia and the coup in Myanmar, you know, it seems to me to be a reflection of like hardening geopolitics more than anything else in which you just have these rifts that are deepening between the West and Russia and China. I mean, we've seen this before, you know, uh, for example, during the you know Syria crisis, you had a similar rift. The Security Council was unable to act meaningfully during the Syria crisis for the most part because of objections uh, from Russia and, and again that rift between the West and uh, the in uh, Russia and China. Yet um, it seems now that these rifts are are deepening, and even in places like Ethiopia where Russia and China don't have like deep strategic interests are still nonetheless preventing um, meaningful Security Council action from taking place, which seems to be just like, I think, again, a reflection of um, the geopolitics of the moment. I know, Margaret or Anjali, does that strike you as being significant? What would you say were the key moments from the Security Council in terms of actions taken and actions not taken in 2021? We'll go Margaret first, or Angela, you, you unmuted first, so you go. Oh, no, that's fine. I actually unmuted by accident, but I'm happy to, I'm happy to, to, to go first. Um, yeah, I think, I think that strikes me as, as being true. The, the, the political divisions between particularly the, the US, Russia and China um, are starting to spill over into conflict resolution problems where their primary national interests are not threatened. And that's really worrying because, you know, from the end of the Cold War on, we've, we've had this sort of um, fairly stable set of gentlemen's agreements, essentially, between members of the P5, where it's not a primary national interest to you. If you don't have a primary security interest in the area, then, you know, you can work through the UN, you can work through the UN Security Council to help arrive at um, a set of conflict resolution mechanisms, whether that's overseeing a peace agreement, whether that's um, putting together, authorizing a peacekeeping operation, whether that's agreeing on the terms of humanitarian aid. And as you noted, as we see in Ethiopia, it's starting to actually become a real problem where the Security Council is not speaking with a single voice. Even if that single voice is basically two or three members or one member of the Security Council deciding to hold their tongue in that particular moment. And that's, I think, you know, that bodes poorly for mm -hmm. the years ahead. I also just want to add, you know, when we think about, as Margaret brought up, the the resolution yesterday on Afghanistan, I think as you back away from the immediate circle of um, 
UN watchers, this idea that the diplomatic recognition of the current governments of Afghanistan and Myanmar um, is sort of like indefinitely suspended, I think it looks like one of those kind of strange, like diplomatic curiosities, but it has real and dramatic problems for the people of Afghanistan and Myanmar as we see today. And really thinking about how the Security Council is going to manage in the years ahead to make sure that uh, the people of Afghanistan and Myanmar do not pay the cost for the fact that the, that the UN system doesn't want to recognize their, their current governments. It's hard to see that's how that's going to happen um, in any kind of concerted way, given the makeup of the Security Council right now and given the sort of centrality of those concerns to different members of the Security Council. Margaret, did you want to add something or reflect on key moments at the Security Council this year? Well, I'll just add that uh, when I first came to the UN in 2008 and until 2011 when the Syrian conflict began, um, things did move more smoothly, I think, in the Security Council, and Lou may want to chime in on that. Um, And it was really with Syria that the tide shifted after 2011. There was just no possibility to get any sanctions put in place after the crackdown on protesters, the the pro-democracy protesters who were protesting against the government in Syria. And then, especially after 2015, uh, once Russia really became deeply entrenched and involved uh, in propping up Bashar al-Assad's regime, then that really split the rift even bigger uh, between Russia and and the Western Council members, Britain, France, and the U.S. uh, on the P5 there. So I think that's really kind of poisoned a lot of what the Security Council has. Oh, I think Margaret dropped off for a moment. Do you hear me? Oh, there you are. Yeah, you're back. back. Uh, Well, what I was going to say is I think it's poisoned a lot of other areas the council works in this, what started with Syria, this paralysis and this division. And I think the council really does risk making itself uh, irrelevant because they can't decide on things. It's almost a joke. You know, once your situation goes to the council, what are they going to do about it? Nothing. They're going to sit there and fight with each other and nothing, you know, nothing. So, and by the time they do get around to saying something, does is anyone even listening anymore? So I think the council really needs to do some reflecting and uh, decide how they see themselves. Uh, you know, they're supposed to be the most powerful organ of the UN, but you know, what have you done for me lately? Right. Mm-hmm. So I think it's a problem. Again, just this again, like this idea of things just hardening since Syria. I mean, even in the Syria crisis, you still had cooperation at the Security Council and say the Central African Republic, which. Uh, deployed a peacekeeping force in, in 2014. There was still like these, that like gentleman's agreement um, that Anjali referenced earlier is still, I think, held to a, a degree stronger than it may today. Um, Lou, do you want to chime in? And then let me say, we'll open yeah. it up uh, for, for participation from those of you in the audience. Simply request to speak and I will do my best to call on you. Uh, Go for it, Lou. Yeah, no- Thanks. Um, uh, some really good points have come up both by uh, Angeli and uh, Margaret. So, you know, I think it's it's true that um, the divisions between the U.S. Um, and Europe and the U.S.'s European allies in particular um, and Russia and China have 
deepened. But in the case of Ethiopia, let's not forget that the um, Afri- the three African members of the Security Council, known internally as the A3, have all have not been particularly dynamic when it comes to pushing the Security Council to do something on Ethiopia. So the the kind of responsibility for the failure there again is a shared one. But but it's true what Margaret said about Russia and China, you know, changing and this kind of you know deepening animosity, um, kind of split polarization of of member states in the UN. I mean, Syria is definitely a watershed moment, but I would, I would put the key kind of shift on Libya and, you know, particularly, um, you know, with, uh, with Russia, which made clear that they felt that the Security Council authorization of military intervention in Libya, which led to, you know, what it's difficult to see as anything but a kind of, you know, um, slow and sometimes fast-moving disaster. Um, so uh, the the Russians often claim that they were tricked, and other Security Council members agree with that. That they felt that that NATO and Western governments kind of tricked them into a regime change thing that went far beyond what the Security Council um, w- uh, w- intended to do and should be doing. China over the past decade has become much more aggressive. It's not just staying in the background and kind of focusing on its regional sphere of influence and the countries it cares about, like, you know, Myanmar, North Korea, and so on. It's become kind of globally difficult. It is, it is taking, it is trying to suppress any attempt to criticize it over the, um, what we at Human Rights Watch call crimes against humanity in Xinjiang and the widespread human rights abuses in um, Hong Kong, Tibet, and other parts of China. Russia has also become increasingly uh, aggressive. And as Margaret said, over the course of the Syria war, this this split, this polarization just deepened. Um, so we at Human Rights Watch and, and our colleagues at Amnesty International and other human rights organizations, we spend much more of our time now trying to find ways to work around the Security Council so that we don't have to deal with this polarization. So we go to the Human Rights Council, if we can, or to the General Assembly, like in 2016 when we got the General Assembly to approve a kind of special prosecutor without a court to investigate serious war crimes in Syria and to preserve evidence for use in, you know, uh, uh, prosecutions under universal jurisdiction, or if someday there's a tribunal, or if it ever goes to the International Criminal Court, uh, I won't hold my breath that the Security Council would agree to pass Syria Mm. to the International Criminal Court. But we've just seen this increasing polarization um, you know, in the Security Council, which reflects a wider polarization, you know, in the world in general. We see it in the United States. We see it um, in Europe. And, you know, it's kind of the buzzword of 2021, I suppose, is polarization. Well, um, let me just take a quick moment to thank Margaret and Angeli and Lewis for taking time to speak with us today. I want to be mindful that uh, we have taken 30 minutes of your time on what is probably your holiday break. Uh, thank you very much for your time, and we'll see you next time. 
Uh, everyone be safe and goodbye. All right. Thank you all for listening. Have a nice new year if you're listening to this contemporaneously and be safe out there. We'll see you later. See you next year. Bye.